Hello and welcome to episode number 209 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books and with me today is author Sharon Kendrick. We recorded this interview at RWA in San Diego and we chat about the 100 plus books that she has written for Harlequin and Mills and Boone. We talk about the particular dynamics of Harlequin Presents, the essential elements of a Harlequin Presents hero, and the unique connections between people and between characters. We also talk about how much Sharon loves her job. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. And we talk about how she got started writing for Presents. This podcast is brought to you by Burn Down the Night by M. O'Keefe. It is perfect for fans of everything I left unsaid. It is a dark, emotional, and dangerously sexy world where a con woman takes a bad boy biker hostage and their battle for control turns explosive. You can find Burn Down the Night wherever books are sold. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Happily Ever Afterlives, a two-in-one reissue of sexy Regency paranormal novellas by author Olivia Waite. In Damned If You Do, Lord Lamborn's sexual prowess has condemned him to hell for lust. But the sharp and sultry Ida Red, the demoness assigned to punish him, is proving to be his greatest temptation yet. You can find Happily Ever Afterlives wherever ebooks are sold. Our music is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the episode as to who this is. And I want to thank you for listening, for tuning in, for joining us, and to let you know that we have a podcast Patreon, should you be thinking this podcast is so rad. I agree. Thank you. I think it's pretty awesome, too. If you'd like to support the show with pledges starting at a dollar a month, you can help me reach goals like transcripts for all of the episodes that don't have one yet. You can find all the details and the rewards at patreon.com slash smartbitches. But most of all, thank you for being here. And now, without any further delay, on with the podcast. Hello, Sarah from Smart Bitches. Sharon. Um, So I'm Sharon Kendrick, and I write for Harlequin Presents, which I have to think is the most fantastic line in all of romantic fiction, but I would say that, wasn't I? And I'm just, um, <laughs> I've just had my 100th book accepted. And that's 100th? 100th, yeah. Whoa, congratulations, I didn't know that. I didn't, oh, holy shit, congratulations, Thank that's you. amazing. Oh, I thought that's why you were doing this interview with No, me. I have been dying to interview yes. generally because essentially you're fabulous. Oh, darling, thank you, you're fabulous too. Um, no, so I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, oh, thank you, Sarah. So no, I'm, and I'm getting, um, you know, I'm getting a, at the Harlequin party. I'll be getting a lovely Tiffany necklace. Um, <gasps> I know, and uh, and yeah, just. Uh, but for me, writing a hundred books, it, it was like it did feel like a really important milestone. I, that know. is an important milestone. But actually, um, with kind of Orwellian portent, I was much more worried about book 101 because <laughs> I, I suddenly thought, oh, what, what if I can't do it anymore? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what, what, if, what if it just ran out, the tanks run dry? I know, and I know. But then I thought it was a bit like, you know if you do judo and you... Um, once you get a black belt, uh, you go back to the white belt, the, the first one again. I quite like that circular thing. So the great news is 
that my 101st book has just been, well, I think it's almost accepted because my, the revisions were very light. The revisions were probably very light because I actually discarded 20,000 words. That'll do it. Yeah, that which was hard lot. to do. But, you know, it is that thing, that old-fashioned saying about kill your darlings. It might be the best writing in the world, but if it's not working, then then it's the worst writing in the world. And it just needs to go. Exactly. And maybe it'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, no, I, ne I can never do that. No. I, you know, in theory, I always think, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's quite good. I could use that for something else. But actually, once it's gone, it's, it's gone. The only time, the only um, time that that, did, uh, that that did differ was that they, Mills and Mooney did a book very quickly, and I'd written, I'd written like, you know, almost a complete book, and I hadn't been happy with it, so I'd, I'd written something else instead. And, but I got it out, and I had a look, and, you know, distance stuff, and I thought, oh, actually, this is all right. And, and it was fine, and it's done really well. It's funny, isn't it, how distance can... Because I'm reading, I mean, am I allowed to plug a book? Oh, gosh, oh. one of my favorite questions is to ask people what they're reading. Well, I'm reading this book at the moment by a guy called Owen Shears. And, I mean, it's ju it's called I Saw a Man. I mean, it's just it's just incredible. Um, I can't remember why I started talking about that book. Kill Your Darlings, editing, cutting editing. things out. Uh, you were asked to write a quick project for Mills and Boone. Uh, and something well, written. as usual, my mind has gone off into a tangent. No, I, I would just <laughs> say, if you want to really... It, I mean, the New York Times described it as exquisite. It's just a fantastically written, page-turning thriller. It's well, it's not really a thriller, but it, it makes you think about life. I mean, I yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, that's that. That's so my introduction. The hundredth ver, the hundred and first book has yeah. just been through visions. Yes. And Are you starting one hundred and two now? Uh, yes, and um, and I'm very excited about one hundred and two because um, uh, readers really like a marriage of convenience book. Um, that is a very, very potent piece of catnip, marriage of convenience. Forced proximity, you can't get away. But interestingly enough, it's quite difficult to do nowadays because actually, you know, and I don't personally like the, the kind of book where the hero's grandfather says, you know, if you want to inherit all the, you know, all the land in Italy, you have to marry because I think, oh, well, you know, just off and you know earn your own money I yeah. think that makes him less of a man if he's just complying in order to work the uh, the only way I, I thought I could make it work was actually if he was a shake because then uh, if he was uh, if his maternal grandfather offered him this oil rich tranche of land that would benefit his country in that case, he would do it for the good of his people. So it's an that altruistic a, reason, yes. That adds a, an altruistic nobility Absolutely, to the rather than just self-interest like self and greed. My personal happiness in my marriage is way secondary to yeah. the overall wealth and benefit yes. of all of the people who are depending on me. And in fact, he choose, he's going to choose a very ugly, unattractive woman because he's, he decides the easiest way to do it because he's not intending to marry until he's about 50 or 60 because men can procreate until, well, look at Charlie Chaplin, until they're 80. And so he'll choose... <laughs> As a young wife when when the time suits him so he's decided to choose himself an ugly unattractive bride that he doesn't, and, and not consummated because then it can be um, dissolved quite easily and of course it isn't going to be quite that easy no it never works out the way the hero <laughs> because wants because she's going to have to stain her lips with the with the um the 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 liquid of the um 
of some sort of fireberry that's going to, you know, she's never worn makeup before, obviously, and it's he's going to realise how succulent and tender her lips are. Oh, booger. <laughs> when that happens. I used to joke I wanted to go to romance novel law school so that I could write all those wills that required you to get married and I live know. in a place. I know. You, I'm writing a will and you have to get married and live in a one-room shack on a really large tract of land in a very scary place in order to inherit. Absolutely. And, and then all of that's ironclad. <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? You know, you, you mentioned that the the will scenario. You know, obviously, I, I actually, you know, I've never had a, the reading of a will, but, you know, there are scenarios that are so, that are so cliche that really should be avoided. And I think the will reading is one of them. Oh, I'm totally you know. with you. And also the hero's, you know, the hero's sports car hurtling down the side of the hill so the heroine has to kind of jump out the way into a ditch, you know. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, come on. That, I think I've seen that in a movie, in different movies, like 20 yeah. different times. Yeah. So what do you think are the essential elements of a good presents? When you're setting up a book, what are the absolutes that need to be there? The absolutes is that he is undeniably the most devastatingly attractive, powerful, Potent. alpha potent sexy yeah. hero he's the kind of man that you you know you might think intellectually well uh, yeah i suppose how else would you think but anyway you might think he i he's everything i loathe i shouldn't like him and yet you can't help yourself well you also know that you have to instill a sort of a core of nobility oh, and for altruism sure. yeah. there has to be some yes some deeply hidden core of goodness. I was going to say he's always redeemable. Yes. But only by the heroine. And yes. that's the secret, really. And um, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's totally the yeah, case. Yeah. She is the key to yeah, his redemption. She, yes, absolutely. And then you have the inexperienced, overwhelmed, often virginal heroine who is into a world that she has no idea what to do with. Yeah, you see, I like, I mean, you know, people sometimes say, oh, well, you know, you're writing a virgin heroine, this is so unrealistic, she's 24. You know, I don't write a virginal heroine, and then I get a load of people writing, I can't believe, you know, this woman is a slut, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so what, you can't win. But also, I well, I like the virginal heroine because everything she learns and everything she discovers is through him mm-hmm. um and and speaking of potent that's very potent it is very potent and also i mean i suppose in a way if you're being absolutely honest it it's quite a useful plot device because if the hero thinks she is nothing but a useless little tramp what then yeah. then obviously when he discovers she's a virgin he realizes that that was a a, a misjudgment do you see what i mean whereas yes. if she has if she has had several lovers and she's behaving in a like, say she's had to, you know, in order to save her dying uncle, she's had to. Um, well, obviously he's not going to die because he, she's going to sort something out. She has to dress up in a kind of sexy cocktail dress at, you know, and at, lure someone. And lure. Well, she wouldn't actually lure someone, but appear to be luring someone. Mm-hmm. You, do you see what I mean? Yes. The mm. misjudgment leads to another misjudgment. Yes. Yeah. Like when. Like, when you're watching a crime drama, whichever character tells the little lie is hiding a big lie. Yes. So his little misjudgment yeah. helps him see the big misjudgment. Yeah, oh, well, actually, made. going back to that book by Owen Shears, by everyone, um, that's that's a lot about sort of... It's a lot about those, those tiny decisions that you make that actually that just have just unbelievable consequences. Mm-hmm. And... You know, he's yeah. It's it's a very it's a very it's a beautifully written book. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. So, do you read a lot of books that aren't romance? Yes, I do. Yeah. Do you read romance as well, or do uh, you just write it? I just write it. Really. Yeah. Yeah. 
What brought you into Harlequin Presents and Mills and Boone? What? Under a hundred books ago, which of course was last week. I was very good at writing stories at school. You know, when I was at primary school, that's like our elementary school. Elementary school. I was just in England. Yeah. Like two days ago, or actually yesterday. Um, I'm really glad to be back in the States because I can cross the street without thinking about it for half an hour, but I'm very, very fluent now in my comparative terms. Well, yes, it's, it's funny how quickly you pick them up because I, I mean, started saying line instead of cue. Cue, yeah. line, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I had to correct myself from saying pants to trousers oh, a couple yes. of times. Cause yes. you got to hook the, mi- the microphone, the, lavatory, the, the lavalier mic, into the waistband. And like I'm talking to six guys in this co- in this conference room. I'm like, yeah, you got to slip it in your trousers, not yeah. your pants. I know, which is why I can never write because I try and you know I'm very aware that when I'm writing, I'm writing for you know an international market. Yes, and so I know that you say pants over here. I can't because for me it's that's of, underwear. It, it is underwear. It's yeah, under- it just sort of. A, um, so, so yeah, so basically they in um, elementary school they used to read my stories out, and then in secondary school as well. I don't have a very good relationship with my English teacher. Um, but uh, then I, I, I wanted to be an actress, I wanted to be a journalist, I, you know, um, I quite liked art, but, you know, I, I didn't come from the kind of background where people went to university, um, and so I left school at 16 and went to secretarial college because, you know, the, the kind of life I'd been living, girls at that time became either secretaries, teachers, or nurses. Um, yeah. And, um, but all my life I'd, you know, all my life I'd written, so I used to, used to write, I did a, you know, magazine at school that I, you know, self-published, well, self-published it. <laughs> oh, what am I talking about, self-published? You did self-publish it. Yeah, I suppose I did, yeah. I you wrote, you ran it off on the mimeograph yeah. machine, it's still self-publishing, even then. There was a lovely um, cartoon that I used to draw in as well called The Adventures of Edith. Poor old Edith. She... <laughs> <laughs> She used to wear size ten army boots. Anyway, um, and uh, right, and then then I um, yeah, I just I used to love writing, and then I I did become a nurse. Um, and actually, when I was training to be a nurse, I used to write the hospital plays for the doctors and nurses. And then I got married and had a um a child, and I started. I thought, well, you know, you've always wanted to write a book. Um, and I just, I don't know, I'd always thought of writing Mills and Boone because I knew that they were the only publisher in the world, they probably still are, that would look at an unsolicited manuscript. And so I started writing a book where the heroine's fiancé was a, a barrister, the baddie fiancé that dumped her. And um, uh, a friend was round for lunch who had been a barrister and he said, well, this is rubbish. He, he didn't say rubbish, he said something a bit rude than that. Uh, a barrister wouldn't do that. So that is when I learned the number one lesson about writing, which is write about what you know. So I'd been a nurse and I'd been, spent a year in Australia. So I sat down, where I, I then had another child very quickly. Um, and when my son was three months old and my daughter was like 20 months and then we were living in this tiny flat, I used to write at night when they were asleep. Again, this thing about, well, I would write a book if only I had the time. If you want to write a book, you have to make the time. You have to have that hunger that makes you do it. And I sat down and I wrote Nurse in the Outback, sent it off to Mills and Boone, and it was published without a single change. Wow. So I was very fortunate. Well, I I feel very fortunate to be, you know, to be able to earn my living out of writing because I love writing. And I feel very fortunate that I I found my genre straight away. 
And, and that was a, a presents title. Uh, well, it was that was um, uh, that was like Mills and Boone romance. Yes. Uh, sorry, Mills and Bo- no, not romance. Mills and Boone medical. Yeah. So I wrote some of those, and then I um, I wanted a bigger market really, so I wanted the contemporary market, and so um, so I wrote one for the rejected, two rejected, three rejected. I you know I didn't like that at all. I wrote the fourth one and it needed four lots of revisions and then it was accepted. And funnily enough, um, Mills and Boone asked me to go in a, a couple of years ago and talk about you know to the sales team about my writing career. And when I said that bit, I sort of said, "Oh gosh, that you know rejected three times." And then I said, "That sounds really arrogant, doesn't it?" And Joe Grant said, "She said, well actually no, not really." She said, "You know that we tend to that writers tend to have they have to have that." that hunger and that that real belief that you can do it that you've just got determination. to determination yeah determination because actually to write three to, having had all those ones published it was very difficult for them to, to then reject me three times and quite difficult you know but I just thought no I'm gonna do this and uh, I'm gonna figure this and, out yeah and then um and I did uh, that's what I've done ever since and you know I've been approached by mainstream publishers because I you know I I like you know, I like the sort of PR aspect of it. Um, you know, I've been feted and taken to the Ivy and asked to, you know, write a mainstream book. But actually, I love what I do. And and for me, that's just, you know, it's a bit like in Macbeth, you know, ambition vaulting itself. Why would I write something else when I love what I write? Yep. Yeah. And I can do it. And you've done it 101 yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah, and people always want to, you know, how do you do it, you know, you know, what do you know, how do you, you know, how do you do it time after time, you know, often men, usually men, you know, often with stripy shirts and very red faces say, well, I suppose we just sort of jumble the, the paragraphs around and change the names, do you? <laughs> oh, fuck that guy. <laughs> and, um, bless his heart. But every book I write, that man and that woman are completely real to me mm-hmm. and also so the interaction that i have with you is is unique to us we wouldn't no one else would would have be having the conversation we're having and the conversation that you have with the woman you meet down the hall you know with it's with one of your friends, everything is unique so so you know there's no problem well I mean, obviously it's you know I'm, I'm downplaying it there are obviously structural problems and problems that occur in books because that's all part of the writing process but actually the the whole thing about what they say to each other what they do is different every time because they are different yes you know that's one of the things i actually really like about your writing you have a lot of dialogue yeah i love dialogue yeah and if i'm reading a book and it's like a long line of a paragraph i'm like oh the part the talking part i'll read that but it's funny i was talking to someone about just that yesterday in particular about sex and say you know like readers like sex you know they like to read about sex because these books are about love and sex is like the you know, the physical manifestation of love you know the, the sex is big um he's very big no sorry that was so corny um and <laughs> the thing the thing is that i find it much more potent and erotic if if you're if you're hearing about it through the dialogue you know we can all describe the 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 physicality the, of what happens. The parts of where, which you know, goes where. And even if described. you try and make it original, you know, like, he, you know, he skimmed the palm of his hand, you know, over her peaking nipple or whatever. It's still, <laughs> it's still pretty much the same. Yeah. But what he would say to her would it's be... unique yeah, to those two people. Yeah. And talking during sex is 
is very intimate. It's totally. intimacy on top of intimacy. Absolutely. No pun intended. Yeah. No, well, quite, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, not in these books, because obviously they do much more than the missionary position. No, yeah, they get pretty <laughs> funky, don't they? I know. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and actually, you know, a, a sort of wordless coupling is, is the antithesis of intimate. And it's, it's not erotic. And it's actually slightly creepy. You know, you just think of, you know, one of those... Well, it's, it's showing, not telling. Absolutely, yes. Unless there's a compelling reason for there to be no dialogue at all. Well, I was going to say, yes. Unless, yes, he would do it to her, but she wouldn't speak to him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That sort of, yeah. But that establishes yeah. tension in it's, existence. Exactly, yeah. yes, yeah. Even though... Yes, that sort of, you know, the mental tussle, you know, again, I know it's sort of, but these, you know, these themes are universal, you know, the, are. you know, you know, the, the, the mind is against it, but the flesh is very weak, you know, and, yep. and if and we if, all want things that aren't necessarily good absolutely. for us, absolutely, including very large, potent, alpha demanding men. Yes. Some of us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that's interesting about Harlequin Presents is that just about every book takes place in so many different locations, like They'll be in major cities. They'll be in glamorous locations. They'll just up and go somewhere else. I, I remember at one point reading one, and I think there were nine different locations, in, and they're not long books. Like there was a lot of jet travel and a lot of a lot of going to Bone Town on the jet because you can when you have your own Absolutely, jet. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there locations that you love to write about or that you've been and you love to add to your books? Well, it's funny. Do you know? Um, I've just. Well, actually, the Owen Shears book. I mean, I think I'm his agent. The book I'm reading at the moment it mentions um, it's got um, Las Vegas in it. Have you um, have you read The Goldfinch? No, I have not. Oh, it's just brilliant. It's so brilliant. I mean, she's you know, I loved on the top, but um, she uh, yeah. She, there's a there's a scene in in Nevada in it, and just I mean, it's it's so brilliant. And I went to RT. Well, I saw you at RT yeah. and Las Vegas. Yeah, I saw I, you I, in the elevator at least right. twice a day. That's right. It was ridiculous. Uh, I get in the elevator, and there you I know, are. I know. You probably thought I was stalking you. Um, no, I just um, figured you lived there. <laughs> yeah, Sally. And uh, yeah, the the elevator. Um, Tiny uh, mirrored nearby. Uh, and. He, um, Las Vegas features a lot in, in fiction, I've realised, mm. and I've decided I definitely want to use it. But So I will use Las Vegas. I mean, I love to write about Paris, and I love to write about New York. But, I, yeah, actually anywhere can be has got its own kind of beauty. Mm-hmm. Even even sort of, um, even, you know, like, I mean, a, like quite a bleak, I think, I think of somewhere like, I mean, I find Milan quite a funny sort of, city really um but of course it's got its own kind of beauty so i think the reason that they switch locations and go to glamorous locations so much is because because they can of course because when you're reading them you want escape literally oh yes Uh, you know so through your imagination you are literally escaping from you know because you're in, in this environment and you're going to all these wonderful places yep yep and uh for me, one of the things that's quite difficult is actually getting them from A to B because I've re- I've realised, you know, and you you've just said that that there's often like a lot of sex, you know, on the plane, in the back, on, in the back on the plane for like nine hours, in the back yeah. of the car. So you just have to because that's you know that thing about time travelling. You know, it, it's quite easy in a movie, isn't it, to sort of oh yeah yeah boom 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 there yeah. There. What do they call it? There's um. Oh, there's a there's an expression that they call it in in films, um, but it's you know hard in, in in a book without again sounding cheesy like December slipped into January, and before she knew it, 
<laughs> the snows had melted and the first buds were beginning yeah. to appear through the blah, barren land. Blah, yeah, 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 exactly. Because the presents have a lot of high, heightened emotion and emotional yeah. immediacy. Yeah. And and a lot of the plots can move very quickly over a short period of yes. time. Yes, yeah. Especially if there's forced proximity or arranged marriages and yes. things like that. Yeah. So you have to make things happen in a short time span. Well, it is that thing of going through all the, you know, I mean, it, the, people disagree. They say there's like seven... Seven plots for a fiction, five, thirteen, I've heard. So, Taming of the Shrew, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. um, you know, Forced Proximity, which I would call Snowbound Cottage. I love Snowbound so stories. Do I. They're my favorite. Mm. If they're not dangerous. No. No one's going to die. No. Nope. It's not a hurricane. It's not a tornado. Nope. No, no flooding. It's just snow. Yes. You can't go anywhere if you've got food. I know. You can, you can make your own heat. But of course, well, and it's interestingly, of course, with the snow comes that immense sort of silence. Yes. yes. So if, if, mm. if the windows are partially covered, it's yeah. very, and even yeah. when it's snowing, it's quiet. Yes, I love that. Oh, me too. Yeah. Snow, snow, yes. snow. <laughs> I am, I am a big fan of. And then they get caught in a snowstorm. What? Oh, yeah, I'm no, listening. I know. Oh, oh yes, no, I'm yes. listening. You know, well, I love it when there's sort of like you know the the pregnant grey heavy clouds and then the first flutter of that yeah. snow, like, and yeah. then it's like, and it's like spilling down, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. We had a huge storm where where I live because I moved from New Jersey to Maryland in December. We had a huge storm in February and we got like two and a half feet of snow but where we live couldn't deal with it and the plowing took forever and so we were trapped on our street for like three or four days and it was glorious fun like all the kids were sledding there was we lived in a cul-de-sac there was just this big pile of snow that the kids would dive into we all traded hot chocolate and made sure all the kids had food and it was just it wasn't even romantic it was just just everyone has to stop yeah you can't go anywhere there's nothing you can do just accept the way things are right now and make the best of what you have in front of you. And then when you put that into a romantic setting with two people who have to work their business out, Absolutely. work their problems yeah. out, it's very, very yeah. powerful. I love snowstorms, <laughs> which I'm in the wrong location to be thinking about snow. It's like 70 and sunny here. I know, and the sunlight's glinting off that amazing bay. And there's a naval base nearby. Yep, there's a lot of navy ships and yeah. sailboats. It's really hard to get work done. Yes. It's really pretty. It's gorgeous. It's very, very lovely. So I want to ask you about my fa- my favorite of your books. Let me guess, what could that be, Sarah? <laughs> oh, well, I mention it in every workshop that I give about reviews, but the Playboy, Playboy Sheik's Burden Stable Girl. I love that book. Yeah, I love that book too. I love I love that Kalik is a highly sexed man and describes himself as such. Yes, I mean he's quite unashamed in his uh, oh. in his arrogance and his sexuality. But you see, you can't. I can't. Loving that man of mine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He is yeah. lovable, isn't he? He is what he is. Yes. I love that book. I mean, funnily enough, when your review first came out, I hadn't heard anything about it. Someone rang me up to tell me about it. And then, you know, then um, I, I rang my editor and then someone that, you know, someone had been on the line from Canada. And, <laughs> oh, God. It was quite a kerfuffle. 
I think because it was the amount of comments about it. And then, oh my God, like, Karen Stocker, who was our editorial director. I mean, I don't know if you knew her. She was, you know, I met her on Sunday. Oh, she's. Fun. She came I, up to me after my presentation. Was like, I was the editorial director of Presents when that review was written. Oh, and I was like, oh my gosh. I know. She, I well, I just well, she's such a smart cookie. But funnily enough, so I was on the phone to her, and she was just and I, and I the, the bit about uh, the bit about where. Basically, um, I remember she'd her horrible father, the heroine's horrible father, had demanded his dinner. He, oh, that she'd done him lentils, and it had been like he'd thrown it on the floor and demanded that. Oh, that, that, that that's right. Demanded that a mother go out and buy a chicken from the market, and of course, her mother had obviously stumbled and fell and and died on the way back. And then I put sort of like, by the time they found her, the vultures had taken away the chicken. And Karen's just one <laughs> fantastic comment was, "I would have just left out the bit about the chicken." <laughs> Trauma makes it so much more real. I know, but you see, I could, I mean, I can see that scene of now. Course. The poor mother under the heat of the sun and this horrible, abusive father, you know, and yep. then, you know, get me my chicken. And, and then she will die in the pursuit yes. of the chicken because that's the life that she's yes. stuck living with this yes. horrible human being. So actually, you know, there's, I mean, I, I felt that the, you know, yeah, I did feel that there were a lot of levels of that book, really. I like that, yeah. Well, there were, they had genuine problems yeah they had real issues and and he gets her out of an abusive situation and doesn't realize that he himself and is a lot of ways abusive and yeah. has to redo his Abs- behavior absolutely and you know and i take your point about i know that the kind of the line that was you know about him dismounting as he would <laughs> remove <laughs> himself from the body of a woman he just made love to oh my god but I, I love it so i know much. but actually you 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 can see I that can man totally thinking see that. that guy you might not agree with it you think this is outrageous no nope. But, That's and, how he sees and, and of course, the challenge as a writer is to make is to make you want you is to make that that couple be happy and to and to work out their issues and actually to have you rooting for them at the end. Oh yes, yeah. Oh yes, yeah. The thing that affected me most in that book, I think, is that she was so out of her depth when she moves to to England. Yeah, everything's green. She's wearing traditional clothes. I know. Everyone's telling her to change, and she's like. Well, no. But, and you know the bit that got that, that made me think, actually, was thinking, what a girl like that, a young woman like that, imagine she'd been living in the desert with this in this very basic existence, and then suddenly she gets on an aeroplane. Imagine how strange that would be. Right. And she lands in a place that's green yes. and raining. Yes. And more green yeah. all the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like a different planet, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What I love most, though, is that you sent me your next book, and you dedicated it yes, to me. Yes, I which, did. Thank you. I did. That was, was very touching. Was it Monica of the Sands? Yes. It, it, it was, was Monica of the Sands, Sands because she was an oil executive. Yeah, she was. A, yeah, a, um, her father had been, at that time, her father had been an academic. I still have the copy you sent me that was a hardcover, but the cover is printed on the hardcover. We don't get books like that in the States. Ah. I loved it. Yes. Yes, they are gorgeous, actually. They're, they're quite, beautiful. yeah, they're iconic. I mean, you know, I think I had one... No, you don't get covers like that in the States, do you? Not unless you do order a special library edition, then you might see that. But the, there's no dust jacket. Like, the cover's printed onto the yes. hardcover binding. Yeah. We don't usually get... Especially not for Mills and Boons. No. Because the Mills and Boons are little in paper. Yeah. I love that. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I love it. And, and when I did a, a talk recently at the Romantic Times convention, um, someone had bought a copy with me for, for me to sign. Ah, I, I love it. Yeah, I love it. Well, recently Harlequin asked me, we're going to do a sale. Would you like to pick some books that you recommend? And I was like, uh, Playboy Chic must go on sale. 
Playboy Chic must be one ninety nine because yeah. I will pimp the ever living hell out of that book. I love to tell people about that book because there's okay, there's a wonderful, glorious enjoyment in reading a plot and a story in any of the subgenres of romance that's just completely over the top. Yeah, larger than life. Larger than yeah. life is really fun and. You know, I, it's really interesting because I've been I've been writing about romance for long enough that I've seen a lot of big tr- trends change, but I always love the larger than life, completely over the top. We, let, let, let's just go for it types of yes. plots. Whether yes. it's a mystery or it's a contemporary or it's historical, I love that because it it it's sort of like affectionate enthusiasm. Being communicated in the right yes, way. and it and it's a, yeah, and it's it a, shows that you love your job. Yeah, I do really love it actually. Yeah, I love it. It's a cool job. Too. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, it, it it's funny because I went, you know, because I'm on English time, so you know, I woke up at the crack of dawn. Yeah. I went to the gym, and then I went into the swimming pool, and then I thought the swimming pool. I thought it was completely empty. Except there's my editor, <laughs> who's also awake. Yeah, and, you're on a and time. you know, just swimming along. I said, this is incredible. You know, we're in this amazingly beautiful pool in San San Diego and it's all you know it's we're we're here because of romantic fiction and you know romantic fiction it it gets a very bad press I don't know about in America but it certainly does in England I I learned about that this past weekend how how much I mean it's even it's I think I mean we get a lot of uh, shaming of readers and dismissal of the genre but enough press has started to take it seriously that it's a little bit more immediate the backlash of you clearly don't know what you're talking about if you rely on antiquated and outdated stereotypes for romance but i got the sense from romantic novelists and the people that i talked to there that the the shame is even greater against them that they're treated with a lot of um dismissal for what they write well yeah and i mean i think you know i think sh- I, I think shame is the wrong word but i i, I mean yeah people are very dismissive about dismissive it. yes dismissive. that's a much better word. i mean you should be a writer oh thanks <laughs> no, that's a pretty good idea uh, yeah maybe you could just bang one out you i know, know a couple of days well, that is what people do say um but actually there was um uh there was an article the just the other day saying um that you know um a marriage guidance um service had blamed Mills and Boone of for giving, you know, um, people unrealistic ideas about love and marriage. And, I, you know, I actually did tweet, oh, here we go, that that old problem, women unable to differentiate between fact and fiction. You know, I mean... People, Come on. Yeah, uh, you know, people used to, you know, people watch TV drama and stuff, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that they think they're actually living it. Yes, but... Anything that tells women that their emotions and needs are valuable and validated yeah. and worthy. Well, yeah. that's, that's just, we yeah. can't have that. Yeah. Women walking around in ownership of their own orgasms. Oh, oh, oh no. Can't have that either. I know. And, um, and actually, the truth of it is, is that, is that women do, th- you know, women do think about their emotional lives a lot. Yes. I mean, particularly at a heightened time when they are on the verge of or in love with someone. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it dominates everything. Yep. It's powerful. It's very powerful. And it's, it's, this, it's the same sort of um, overwhelm 
no matter what the setting of those characters that that one of the things that I realized that was as a fundamental difference between the books that are described as romantic novels in the UK and the romance novels of the United States is that in the States, the romance, the emotions, they're the main story. That's the reason that the book exists. Yes. And so much of what is published that I saw being promoted and talked about at Romantic Novelists, romance was one of a number of things that were happening in that book. It wasn't yeah. the only thing in the book. Yeah. It was one of a number of other plots that were all going to be yeah. resolved, yeah. which is a different sort of book. Here, and especially with Presents, the emotional courtship is the reason that book is happening. Yeah. And that's pretty powerful stuff. Absolutely. And, of course, it doesn't get any respect because it's, you know, girls and their feelings. Girls and their feelings. You know, people, yeah, people think because they're, well, you know, a, a book, I think, I, I won't read a book unless I find it compelling. Oh, me neither. You know, it's just... Um, you know, it has to. I don't want someone says to me, "Well, you have to, you have to really work through the first fifty pages." I'm sorry, no, you know? I'm not here no. for that. Sorry, I no. got many other fifty pages yeah. that I could be reading. And right I now. think because presents are easy to read, that people think they're very easy to write. No, no, well, they're not. no, because I have read bad attempts at presents. Yeah, and it is not the same thing. No, and in fact, um, in England, we've got a we had to. Um, uh, teach this very respected political journalist how to write a romantic novel. Now he's the most fantastic writer, and he's you know lucid and eloquent. Appears on TV, and you know his writing is fantastic. Uh, but he couldn't do it, you know, it, it because it reads like pastiche. Yep. And and if writing down emotions genuinely is not easy to do. No, I it's think not. people take that for granted. Yeah. And um, and 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 also, you know, writing sex is not writing sex and making it it's easy to do it badly. <laughs> it, it is. We have a bad sex award in England. You know I that, yeah. know you do. I yeah. I look forward to it yeah. every damn year because <laughs> it's so bad. I know. Glorious. I mean, I'm surprised you haven't got one in America. Maybe you should introduce one. Uh, maybe good publicity. Mm, you know, make a good point. Yeah. Although, my God, the number of entries, holy moly! Yes. Well, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just walked right into that. Yes, didn't she I? Did. <laughs> wow. Oh, I am so proud. <laughs> so proud of you right now. That's just the I'll be the cap of my day. Go to bed now. <laughs> Sex contest. <laughs> you should. So, what romances that you love do you recommend to readers when people are asking for something to read? And do you have a favorite of your books that you've written? Or do I, you... I do like the Playboy Shake, and funnily enough, I do like Surrender to the Shake as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, I like the one at the moment, Crown for the Prince's Heir. I I do I really like it actually. It's got it's got um it features some very heavily pregnant sex. But that's not why I like it. But it, it's just I yeah I like her. I like him. He's a bit arrogant. Yeah, it's just um, I I enjoyed writing it. Uh, who do I who do I recommend? Well, Nora Roberts is brilliant. And there's I've noticed that there are so many different readers that have a there's a Nora Roberts for them. Yeah, because she does so many different things. There's everyone has a different favorite, but there's always a Nora Roberts novel, pretty much that you can align to she, someone's taste. She wrote one, and I can't remember what it's called. But it was about a woman who was being threatened, you know, and and the and the, and she had a she had a puppy in it, the, or the guy had a the guy had a puppy, and I mean, it was just it was it was everything really. It was yeah, it was just the characterization was brilliant, and it just yeah, 
it was superb. Um, I mean, it sounds terrible to say that I don't read romance, doesn't it, really? No, it doesn't. I talk to a lot of writers, and there's a lot of writers who say that they don't read a lot in the genre because it helps them with their writing yeah. to not read too much of it when yeah. they're, they're writing. And if you're always writing, if you're writing one book and another book Absolutely. and another book, you need to keep your style. Yeah, and also, I, I want to read books... I want to read books of exquisite writing mm -hmm. that make that make that that make me think, oh, I want to make my writing as good as it can be. So that my aim is to write a, a book that's really kind of you know full of power and honesty. That I'm not thinking I'm writing a presents. Do you yes. know what I mean? For me, I'm writing a powerful love story. Yes, yeah. it happens to be published by Harlequin Presents. Yeah, Presence, yeah, but that's that is the venue through which you are creating your Absolutely. best yeah. writing yeah. that you can. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. yeah. I mean, um, uh, actually, someone's just recommended a book to me, which I can't wait. I love a word of mouth book. Oh yeah, you know? me too. So there was, I mean, a, a book. I'm just I, a big mouth, actually. So okay. I'm just the big. Word I've got of mouth. a big mouth as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, there was one I really absolutely loved that I told everyone to read called Apple Tree Yard. I don't know if you've got it over here. No, Louise no. Doughty. And I mean, it's. Uh, it's not really a thriller. The characterization is just unbelievable. You know, all those subtle, those subtle layers of things that are, you know, she doesn't even have to say, but you know what's happening. And, mm -hmm. and just how heartbreaking life can be, really. Again, it's that it's someone making just the wrong decision. And then from that, so much splinters. Yes. And that one tiny, tiny decision has enormous evolving repercussions yes. for the rest of a book. Yes, and actually, you know, a, a decision that someone can make can affect so many other lives, you know, and just, yeah. I don't know what that roar is. I assume an airplane is taking off. I somewhere. think it might be a sort of manly. Apparently, there's Navy. There's Navy Seals out there. Oh well, we are in the right what's, place. What's uh, what's one of your favorite books? Of romance? Well, any book. I suppose, maybe for romance. There are a couple books that I love, and I and if I pick them up, I start rereading them. Yeah. And I can't stop. One of one of the one of the books that just makes my whole body go completely still is called Lamb, the book, the Gospel of Christ According to Biff. It is by Christopher Lamb or Christopher Gore. And it is the story of one of um, Jesus Christ's best friends, whose name is Biff. And they're missing chapters of Jesus' life in the Bible. Like, in the Bible, Jesus goes from, like, 13 to 20-something, and they're missing those lives. And so the, the archangels resurrect Biff and stick him in a motel and say, we need you to write the story between here and here. And he's like, what the hell is going on? Okay, fine. And he tells the story of Christ between 13 and 26. Um, from a religious and theological standpoint, it's amazing. It's, I made my husband read it, and the both of us still talk about it, but what really works is that you're reading about a larger-than-life character with so many interpretations of that one sure. individual story, yeah. and you're reading his, his sort of dumb best friend's story of his extraordinary best friend, and the characters become very, very real. I love that book so much, because every time I read it, I just have this sort of, wow. I can't believe someone assembled the alphabet into this. This is amazing. Oh, that, yes. I, like, how did you do that? Yeah. That's an incredible feeling when you right. read a book, isn't it? Like, it's the same 26 letters yeah. if you're writing in English. Yeah. You put them in an order that I was know. amazing. How did you do that? Yeah. 
I also just have been reading recently a lot of Mary Balog's older Regencies, the Signet Regencies from the late 80s and early 90s that she has been republishing under new covers. And older Regencies, the Signet Regencies, are very different from the historical novels that are being published now. Um, and In what way? There is a lot more focus on minute character development mm. and dialogue mm. and, and a lot of them take place in small towns that are move into London and then move back to a small town and there are characters moving at a very limited amount of, of, of ge- geography like they can't move around easily there's there's horses and carriages yes. and walking and yeah. those are your options yeah. and enormous amounts of emotional development happen in tiny tiny scenes yeah. like you were saying that it's not on the page but you can see what's happening yes. a lot of that happens in the older regencies that I just I love I love it because you can tell that the conversation on one level is very mundane and beneath that there's a whole bunch of tension Do you know well I don't read them but it's a very short period of time that regency period so yes. what is it what is the huge fascination I with regency know. I know Kathy Robin from RT says we've been reading about the regency like 10 times longer than it actually existed I know I think that it is because there's more historicals being written in adjacent periods now and a lot more being written about um, industrial revolutionary periods and all of these developments and inventions. But I think with the Regency, it was a culture just on the edge of enormous upheaval with a very limited um, social rules. And there's this whole, you know, there's the element of the aristocracy and the elite and an astonishing amount of money and a, a formality that, and rules that have to be observed. And there's tension in that essential rule observation because on one hand you have men and women who would like to be together but they're not allowed to be yes. together except that the women's moms all want them to be together but only in specific ways and the men would like to be with the women but not in a way that's permanent and yeah. so they all want to be with each other yeah. and not be with each other in different layers and that tension creates a lot of interesting stories. I wonder, do you think that rules made for the, the more stringent rules made for a more contented society or, or the... That's a good question. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Because a lot of those rules restricted women, um, maintained class lines that were very damaging to anyone who wasn't in the upper sure. class. There's a lot of downsides to those rules. But I also think that um, I have a lot of respect for etiquette yeah. and standards of behavior yeah. because it allows you to treat other people with a with a commonly understood respect. Yeah. And for example, I've just I've been I've been traveling through three different well, the Iron the Isle of Man is a crown dependency, so it's not technically its own country, but it's kind Ooh, of its yeah, own thing. They like to think that they way, think their own yeah. thing. So maybe three and a half, four countries. And the first thing I always make sure I know how to do in a place where I may not necessarily speak the language is know how to say please and thank you and hello and goodbye because I want to be respectful. I'm always the same. Yeah. And if there's a way from that that. Um, if there's a, a, a manner of being or uh, a, a way of being respectful with how I present myself or how I interact with people, yeah. like um, in some cultures, shaking hands is too formal. And if exactly, you meet someone, yeah. you give them kisses. Or if you kiss somebody, that's unacceptable. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that I am being respectful within the, the societal rules that I have entered. I don't expect them to be like me as an American. I want to be respectful of how they do their thing because I'm a visitor. I'm a guest. Yes. So those rules, I think, are, I don't think they're, one set is more important or one set is less important, 
but I think it's really interesting to see how different people interact on a social level and then the commonalities that exist beneath that. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, it's, it's going back to that thing we were saying right at the beginning. I mean, you know, people are just, you know, it's... um you know, my book's basically, it's about a man and a, a woman, and he may have all the money in the world, and, you know, she may be sort of whatever she is. But, you know, ultimately, they, they feel the same things at all. And, and Yes. And, I, I mean... They're all a hot mess inside. <laughs> well, yeah, because human nature doesn't change, does no, it? No, it doesn't very much at all, you know? no matter how what kind of societal rules you place on and, it. Which, of course, is, is one of the awful things, is why, you know, why wars happen, because history repeats itself, because in a way... You know, it's got to repeat itself, because it's no learned. good... Well, no, because yeah. we, in a way, we can only learn through experience, through yep. our own experience. Yep. You know, otherwise, it, I mean, it, it shouldn't be that way, but that's how it is. It is. What do you think? Do you think rules are important as well? Uh, well, I don't like the idea of, I know, I mean, I, I don't like the class, the rigidity of the class system. Yeah. Um, I almost think, I almost think, I, I do think, you know, etiquette, I think, really equals respect. And I think almost in a way it's gone, that freedom has gone, you know, well, you can't say freedom's gone too far because, you know, freedom is a wonderful thing. But I think there should... I think there should be a little bit more respect in society, really, you know, mm -hmm. just for, you know, for everyone. I mean, it's funny, you were just describing the Regency thing, you know, this small period and you're poised, you know, the, the brink of this, you know, momentum. I'm just thinking about what's going on in England right now. I mean, my oh. God. Well, it was it was very disorienting for me to be in England, looking at all of the Brexit oh. upheaval. It's and been like so the, divisive. And the whole government is like, yeah, we quit. And... At the same time, um, America has had a hideous week. Yes. Truly hideous. Yeah. And I found myself trying to explain this to people who were asking me about it. And, you know, it, there's no simple answer. It is a hideous problem. Mm. It's bigger than me. I can't fix it personally. And yet when I ask them about the problems that are happening in England, that's the same response. They, I, I, It's bigger than me. I can't I fix it, and it affects yeah. me horribly, and it's terribly upsetting, and I feel powerless, yes. and I don't know what to do. I know. it's 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 been seismic, actually. Oh, it's been very seismic. And I felt very sad that my vacation was essentially 20% cheaper because the pound plummeted right before I left. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean... That's not a thing that I enjoy. I, I well, finally, someone said to me, "Oh, did you buy all your dollars before the um before the Brexit before the referendum?" Like, well, of course I did because I don't live my life like that. Do you know no, what I mean? No, no, I have no idea. Although at the same time, I um I went to the Isle of Man last week in between my husband vacation with my husband and RNA, and I figured you know RNA was in Lancaster. I could go to the Isle of Man just take the ferry. Yeah, over. it was it was lovely. It was beautiful. Yes. I really enjoyed it. But we're on the, I was on the ferry from Douglas going east back to England, and all of a sudden the, the ferry, which is this massive thing, there's cars and trucks and motorcycles inside it and all these people, we take a hard left to the north, and the captain says that we have been requested by Belfast um, Coast Guard to help identify a yacht that they have been searching for that has been in distress in the Irish Sea all night, and they haven't been able to find it. And so we, this massive ferry, we pull up next to this teeny tiny little sailboat with two people inside. They had no motor. The sail tore. They had a radio. They didn't have flares. They'd been out on the sea all night. And we had to, 
um, turn off this the state the boat had to turn off the stabilizers because it would have pushed the sailboat away from us to keep us very even yeah. so we start rocking more but our job was to shelter this little tiny boat from the weather until Belfast could could oh, arrive with wow. two lifeboats so there's this teeny tiny little boat where this massive ferry and we pull up right next to it and our job is to just make sure that they are safe from yeah. the weather yeah and make sure that they are not in danger and there's no medical problems and so you know this boat from the Isle of Man is waiting for Ireland, and then there's a helicopter from somewhere on the English coast circling to make sure there's not an emergency that anyone needs to be extracted. So essentially, three very different groups of people are coming together in the middle of the ocean to save two people who made a mistake. Meanwhile, on every television on the boat is the Dallas shooting of police officers and the riots in the States, and the president is speaking. So on one hand, I'm terribly emotional because this is, you know, this is my country. I care yeah. very much about it. And it's yeah. kind of in a handbasket going to hell. And it's it's hideous. And at the same time, You're doing we're this. all just humans on a boat yeah. helping each other, yeah. make sure. And, and, and the thing about the rule of the sea is that if there is a mayday call, everyone has to respond. That's wonderful, you drop it? Yeah. and you go. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, if we could have more of that. Oh, I know. You know, we could fix a lot of shit if we I all know. agree, okay, this is bad. Let's all work together and make sure this doesn't happen again. I know. That would, that would be a good rule. I would like that rule. <laughs> yeah, I think we should campaign for that rule. I think that's you a know. rule. Behave on land like we're all at sea. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very good. So, okay, so behave on land like we're all at sea. Have a life preserver. Have if a someone's li- in help. If that's, someone needs help, we yeah. all help. Yeah, definitely. You can't ignore anyone in distress. And a bad sex award. <laughs> that would also be an enormous <laughs> asset. But I, I don't know. Bad sex at sea might might be bad. We might not want to make them all at sea. <laughs> uh, no, actually, it would be it would be on a yeah, on a rocking boat, wouldn't no, it? That would not be so good. No, I don't think that's the bad kind of bad sex. No. We want. So, it's amazing. So they were all, they were alive and they were well. Yep, they had lifeboats. They had life vests on. Oh. Um, the ferry delivered that's water. That's a lovely and snacks. story. Yeah, it was really impressive. And and, and I remember saying to somebody because we're all like, I'm surprised the ferry wasn't leaning yeah. to the one side because we were all watching. Yeah. You know, I was like, we're all just, you know, a handful of people. That's just a handful of people. But of, of course, I bet, I bet just that action united you all anyway, in the way that not, yeah. 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 I mean, we're all watching the, the, these life, I mean, the lifeboats were little compared to the ferry yeah. we were on. And I'm like, there's like, you know, a handful of humans figuring this out yeah. right now. And I had to tow this all the way back to, yeah. to Belfast. And it was just, it was amazing. Yeah. It was just amazing. Like, you only need a handful of people to do something really extraordinary. You see, sometimes I wonder if the, the fact that we've, um, you know, we've sort of divorced so much of our, our lives from, from the actual, you know, like we, we buy our food in the supermarket and it's all... Um, packaged and pretty. All packaged. Yeah. A friend of mine, her daughter's doing, um, she's training to be a vet and, you know, and I said, oh, you know... Have you rung any chickens' necks yet? She said, yeah, I had to do that yesterday. And I said, well, my mother grew up on a farm in Ireland. She had to do that. I mean, it was much more, you know... You're and, touching yeah, the food t- that yeah, you're making. Yeah, absolutely. You're going out there. And, of course, you know, it's very difficult feeding, you know, feeding the planet. Um, but, you know, I suppose when people were out digging their crops, they weren't sitting around saying, am I happy? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well we we've sort of we have these very um, sanitize yeah we have time and we've sort of sanitized our lives really haven't we yep and we have time because everything is much more automated yes we have to think about what to do with our cognitive cells yeah. we have to think about what to do yeah that's true thank you so much for doing this it's a pleasure interview. i've really enjoyed it
And that is all for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Sharon Kendrick for hanging out with me at RWA and talking about books and publishing and her career. 100 books plus is really kind of amazing, isn't it? I That's a lot of books. Way to go. If you've got questions or ideas or suggestions or you want to ask me a question, you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. I have an episode coming up of several interesting questions and email messages and voicemail messages. If you want to leave one of those, you can call 1-201-371-3272. Let us know what question you have or tell us about the book that turns you into a romance reader because I have many of those and they're awesome and I can't wait to share them with you. This podcast was brought to you by Burn Down the Night by M. O'Keefe. Set in the world of her best-selling Everything I Left Unsaid, Burn Down the Night follows a beautiful con woman who takes a bad boy biker hostage, and their battle for control turns explosive. You can find Burn Down the Night wherever books are sold. Our podcast transcript this week is brought to you by Happily Ever After Lives, a two-in-one reissue of sexy Regency paranormal novellas by author Olivia Waite. In Hell and Hellion, Virginia Greening has always loved the dash and dazzle of London society, but when she's jilted by the man she rescued from hell, the pitying looks and backhanded whispers only leave her feeling more left out. Now she's seeing demons lurking in the corner of every proper parlor. Her soul is off-limits, but they don't make for comfortable company, especially when Incubus James Greaves strides naked onto the ballroom floor and asks her to dance. You can find Happily Ever After Lives wherever ebooks are sold. Our music is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is Percolator by Hanuman Collective from their album Pedal Horse, which you can find at Amazon or iTunes or wherever you buy your fine music. Thank you again for joining me for hanging out talking about romance novels once a week. If you'd like to take a look at our podcast Patreon, it's at patreon.com slash smartbitches. For a dollar a month, you can help me reach some major goals. But most of all, I am incredibly grateful that you are joining us each week to talk about romance novels. And on behalf of Sharon Kendrick and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. Thank you.